Hello and welcome back to another episode of Cyber School from Home, a podcast where we try and have some conversation and discussion about um, biblical themes and biblical content tangential to and somewhat guided by the Seventh-day Adventist Cyber School lesson. This one is really unusual. My name's Lachlan, and today I'm recording this from uh, a holiday house where I am on, on holiday with my family. And I know that other people that regularly participate in this podcast are also traveling, coping with various things that have come up in life. And we have, for the very first time ever in this podcast, uh, drawn a blank. We've been unable to schedule a recording in time to be able to release this uh, on our normally normal pattern. So if you are a regular listener, you may have noticed that this episode has been published a day late, and I'm sorry about that. If you're a regular listener, you'll also be familiar with the fact that this is usually conversational. And today, I am going to be just talking by myself. I'm sure that this will make it easier to edit, <laughs> to be honest. And I'm also sure that it will mean that it ends up being a little bit shorter. So um, I'm very grateful that you're here to join me on a little exploration of the book of Ephesians, because that's where we're up to. Um, you'll recall from last week, we introduced this as a new topic for this season of the podcast, but we didn't actually open the book of Ephesians um, because we read from Acts to try and understand a little more of the historical cultural context of, of Paul writing this letter. So let's start by reading the first half of Ephesians chapter one. And um, this follows a pattern that is fairly familiar to us in the epistles that form quite a chunk of our New Testament. And um, so, yeah, join me and I'm going to be reading just from verses 1 to 14. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus, who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. So that's what Paul has to say as he opens this letter. And it's a really 
succinct kind of breakdown of a whole lot of the ideas that we still find to be meaningful and significant and helpful in our Christian picture of the world and in our Christian experience. I'm particularly interested uh, in this for a, f- a few new thoughts have occurred to me as I've, as I've just looked through it and um, tried to work out what I might be able to contribute to a <laughs> conversation of one. Um, the first thing that I noticed here, uh, and this was picked up a bit in the lesson pamphlet, and, and I thought it was a really cool idea, is the, um, is the connection with the Spirit, God's Spirit. So in verse 3, uh, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So there's a, a spiritual blessing here. And then the, the end of the passage that I read, down in verse 13 and 14, um, it talks about the Holy Spirit, which has been given to the Gentiles. And we know it has because we've read Acts. And even in last week's episode, we read of the Holy Spirit coming on the believers in Ephesus. So when Paul is writing this, we, we have some idea of, of what he's saying and who he's talking to. So in verse 13, uh, giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised. Um, verse 14, the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. It's interesting to think of the Spirit as a promise, isn't it? That's not the way I think that um, certainly Adventist Christians typically think about the Spirit and I suspect there's something quite valuable there to, to sort of ponder. There's another aspect of this opening passage in Ephesians that I find really interesting. At my wedding, I didn't have a, a reading from Ephesians. I had a reading, uh, we selected a reading from Philippians. And um, again, from the opening passage, and it was a, a sort of a prayer of thanksgiving. And it it, it was applied in the wedding ceremony a little bit out of context and acknowledged as such um, because when Paul writes it in in Philippians he's um, he's not thinking specifically of the kind of um, romantic partnership and relationship that is celebrated in a wedding but he is nonetheless thinking of relationship with people um, you know and he opens it um, by by saying every time I think of you I give thanks to God um, I make re- requests for all of you with joy uh, you've been my partners, uh, spreading the good news for, uh, from Christ, about Christ, from the first time you heard it until now. Um, and I'm certain that Christ, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. There's The reason I bring it up is because that passage uh, has special meaning to me, obviously, as a passage that was used in our wedding. But it's also so similar in so many ways. There's a There's a familiarity and a pattern here, and Paul is beginning his letter to the Ephesians in what I feel is a very uplifting way. It's an encouraging way. This letter um, is, is at the moment at least, and we're going to have to see a little bit over coming weeks exactly where it goes, but in the opening of this letter, it's certainly not a a letter of concern. It's not a letter of discipline. Uh, It's not a a speeding fine arriving in the mail. Uh, This is a really pleasant correspondence to receive it seems to me and and paul is in just a couple of verses giving this breakdown of of some of the key themes so i've already commented on spirit um there's a huge emphasis on jesus christ in fact as i read it out loud it almost felt as if it needed a little bit of the hand of the editor because it was a little too repetitive let me just read the first verses again 
This is the letter from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's used once in every sentence and twice in some. There is a huge emphasis here. And so it's very clear to me that Paul is proclaiming a message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming a message that's focused <clears throat> focused on Jesus. And there seems to be this this emphasis on a on a transition that has taken place. So I find it fascinating the way um, the way that this is constructed. While being so encouraging of these Gentiles, <clears throat> Paul even in verse 12 acknowledges that um, it was the Jews, and he says, we Jews, he's identifying here as a Jew who was the first to trust in Christ. Um, and Paul says that would bring glory to God. But he says, now that you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you, and when you believed, he identified you as his own by giving you his spirit. And we know that because in Acts, we saw that. Remember, Paul arrived. There were people who were believers. Paul explained a little bit more to them about, about Jesus. And they, <clears throat> they had that experience of the Holy Spirit washing over them that was evidenced in Acts by their speaking in tongues. So there's a transformation that takes place when we chose God, choose God, uh, when they chose God, and we believed in Christ. He identifies us as his own by giving us the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the idea that's coming out there in verse 13. And there's a key word here in Ephesians 1 that comes up at least three times, and it's really interesting, is the word inheritance. So in verse 11, Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us. So there's this idea of inheritance. Our inheritance is, and the, the lesson brings this out, I think it's a really interesting thought. Inheritance is different from something that is earned. So an inheritance um, is, is a thing that is given, and it's given on the basis of an identity, a connection. So Paul seems to be saying something really nice here because he seems to be saying if we if we are united with Christ, if we um, believe in Christ, if we identify ourselves as part of God's family through Christ, then we receive an inheritance. That's God's desire for us. In verse 14, the same word comes up. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he has promised. Um, so <clears throat> again, uh, there's... There's this idea of the spirit being sort of just a little bit of a, of a, of a down payment, um, and I think that's a fascinating thought. I'm going to be pondering that a bit myself. And although I stopped at verse 14 here, uh, the idea of inheritance comes up again in verse 18, just a bit further down in this chapter. Um, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. So that's an interesting one because that in verse 18 of this chapter it sort of paints the picture of, of us being a holy people who are. God's inheritance in some way. Um, so the Paul is having a bit of fun playing with that word. Now, there's one elephant in the room, obviously, here in this passage that I've read, which is um, chosen. He chose us in advance. I'm reading from verse 11. We've received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. 
And I'm going to sidestep the whole discussion of predestination, mainly because I don't have a whole lot to add to it um, that we haven't already kind of alluded to. And I think it would be something better teased apart with the diversity of voices that we normally try to achieve on this podcast. I don't find uh, a compelling biblical picture to say that um, human choice is effectively invalid and that um, those who are saved are the ones chosen by God in some sort of advanced selection. I don't find that to be all that compelling. And in fact, even even here, it it doesn't seem to me to carry that weight because there's one kind of overarching idea that seems to dominate even more. And, and it comes in exactly the preceding verse. Um, so verse 9 says God's revealed a mystery uh, regarding Christ. And then verse 10, And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. That doesn't sound to me as if it is describing a process where some are selected to be in and others are selected to be out. It seems to me that this picture of redemption, of restoration, of salvation that Paul is kind of reaching for and painting in very, very quick, broad strokes as an introductory passage to this letter is a, is a picture that's overwhelmingly encompassing. It's not about selecting who's in and who's out. It's The plan is to select everything. The plan is to unite everything. The, the wording here in the New Living Translation, bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything on heaven and on earth, everything in heaven and on earth. You can't get a whole lot more encompassing in the language of the biblical cultures than everything in heaven and on earth. I mean, this is this is quite a remarkable sort of picture. So is this then some sort of universalism? Well, I, I don't want to sort of wander down there too far. Um, it's I've made the claim before. I think even if we're not going to be universalists as Christians, we should we should hope that God wishes he could be a universalist. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I think that we should be hoping that God has a yearning to save everything. If there's things that God can't save, it it seems to me most plausible that it's because they are unsavable rather than that God has just decided um, either in advance in a predestination stage or post the fact in some judgment phase that he that he just doesn't like some people. That's just my own picture of of what makes the most sense to me in the in the compelling kind of picture of of Jesus that we see in the Bible. So in this context, I was really fascinated by a little quote and a um, and a, th- a thought that the the Sabbath school lesson included and I was intrigued and I'm very appreciative that it that it felt the the need to go and make this additional clarification comment so the quote was from um, a book by Alistair McGrath what was God doing on the cross um, and the the quote says to be redeemed is to be treated as a person not an object it is to become a citizen of heaven rather than a slave of the earth And I thought that was a really nice picture of redemption. And then the lesson pointed this out. Note carefully that the idea that God pays the price of redemption to Satan is medieval, not biblical. God neither owes nor pays Satan anything. Isn't that a really fascinating thought to bring to our attention, an emphasis to bring to our attention? 
And I think that one of the reasons the lesson is going to some lengths to make that a really clear statement is that the language in verse 14 of Ephesians 1, um, God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. That sounds like paying someone for something. And who would God pay? Well, presumably Satan. This is the medieval idea, right? Humans are owned by Satan and God pays a price to buy us from Satan. If that's an idea that's meaningful and valuable to you, then I think um, then you can you can certainly work with it. But what the lesson, the statement that I read from the lesson is highlighting is just the overwhelmingly greater power of God. He doesn't owe anything to Satan. He doesn't pay anything to Satan, um, and which, of course, raises all the interesting questions. What is God doing when Jesus dies on the cross? And this is, the, you know, the, the big and deep pool of thought and conversation that, that we could have endlessly um, certainly here in Ephesians, it seems to me at face value that it's language of buying out slaves to make them free. And that's the, the, the emphasis is the transition from slavery to freedom, not the financial transaction from the purchaser to the previous owner. And so uh, I don't uh, like all sort of metaphors. Uh, it goes so far and doesn't go, it doesn't have, cover every single detail. So to me, the real idea here of us being purchased by God is us being liberated by God, freed by God. What was that quote from Alistair McGrath that the lesson picked up? To be redeemed is to be treated as a person, not an object. It is to become a citizen of heaven rather than a slave of the earth. That's pretty nice. I really like that. And the other theme that I want to just, uh, dwell on for a moment, which is so valuable here, and, and I think comes up again, and we'll, we'll have a chance to discuss this, is the theme of unity. Um, I've mentioned it when I was talking about God's plan in verse 10. And here is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. So he chose us in advance. He makes everything work according to his plan. What's his plan? His plan is to bring everything together, to unite everything under the authority of Christ. That's the plan. Well, that's a really exciting plan to me, I think. It's, it's a, an amazing idea. It's an idea of transformation and growth and transition and redemption um, rather than an idea of sort of destruction and starting again. There are some elements of the Protestant Christian tradition that I think overemphasize the discontinuity of God's plan. Earth is bad, sin is bad, God destroys something and recreates. There's this discontinuity. I think the Bible is also rich. So, so that language is definitely present. The discontinuous transformation is definitely biblical language. So Protestant Christians have not made a mistake. They're not inventing something that isn't there. But I think that the emphasis on that exclusively might be missing something that is there, which is equally strong language of transformative growth, of redemptive change. And I find uh, a great joy in juxtaposing those two things together. They are con contradictory. And so there is a paradox here. And I think like so much of deep fundamental truth, uh, the, the greatest insights into the truth are perhaps accessed by just living in and pondering the discomfort of that paradox. There are there are two things that seem contradictory. So this idea of unity, well, it, it definitely comes up again. And the lesson does uh, point out that in chapter 4, 
uh, of Ephesians coming up, there's a whole exploration of this strong theme of unity. Here, let me just read the first four verses, although I know we're going to get to it in coming weeks. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourself together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. That's a beautiful call to unity, isn't it? And I think, actually, that this, and, and here I'm going to deviate a little bit from the lesson in, in that I'm, I'm only expressing my own thoughts at the moment here. I think this is a helpful balancing correction from some of the extremities that were explored in the Adventist lesson pamphlet last quarter on the Three Angels Messages, where some passages were interpreted in very strongly kind of us-and-them language. Us-and-them particularly within the Christian community. There are some Christians that are right and some that are wrong, and it might be which day you worship on Saturday or Sunday, and it might be what your picture is of how what happens to people in the you know, aftermath of death. Um, all sorts of different things can be thought of and used as heavy artillery to divide. And what it seems is happening here in Ephesians is Paul is calling us to unity. And I want to, the reason I read those four verses from chapter four, even though it's jumping ahead, is because make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. So it's united in God's spirit. It's all, and in the opening chapter, it was united in Christ and in God's plan through Christ. So it's the unity, the unity that we are seeking is a unity that is driven by our love for God and by the fact that it is one God that we are following and seeking to emulate and submitting to and worshipping. And in Ephesians 4 verse 4, which I read, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's a really healthy reminder um, that we definitely need to devote time to dwelling on the things that we share in common with other Christians, with other denominations, perhaps even with other religions. Um, that doesn't mean that we have to diminish all the things that we hold dear and particular and special, but we definitely, I think, are called to a humility of... Um, how, how does Paul write it? Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. There it is. That's, that's chapter, chapter 4, verse 2. And I think it's an absolutely amazing call for us to ponder and dwell on. And I'm going to leave you with a question because I don't really have a neatly formulated answer to put into this recording, but I want you to ponder this. In the light of Paul's call to be humble and gentle and loving and united in Christ, here's a question straight from the lesson. How can you acknowledge and celebrate that the redemption you have experienced in Christ Jesus is part of something sweeping and grand, an integral part of God's studied and ultimate plan to unite all things 
in Christ. Thank you for joining me on this very unusual Sabbath School from Home. If you have any thoughts and questions or comments, you can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And I hope you can join us again next week where it better not be just me, otherwise I'll definitely be running thin on ideas. So we should be able to get a conversation back up and running.